drums call back the other fighters. On the wall tops, Cross Tooth thinks it's a retreat and cheers. Badrang knows otherwise. He can tell it's a controlled retreat to make plans. He won't damage morale by pointing that out, though. See, this is what I mean, though. He's a good leader when he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Sort of. He knows that if his men think it's a proper retreat, they will uh, be less stressed out. Yeah. And be more ready to fight. In theory, anyway. In theory. Clog does it for him, though, and gets a savage blow from Badrang for speaking up, like a savage clock to the top of his head. Badrang knocks him clean off the wall, telling the others to pay him no heed. He'd passed out extra food to help them stay up and keep an eye on the outside fighters. Maybe they'd have another chance to fight after all. And he's met with cheers. Clog definitely has a concussion. More than a concussion. By the end of it, it's it's implied. I mean, listen, he get concussions can cause brain damage if they're not treated. And his definitely wasn't, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do want to point out, Badringa is putting a lot of faith into his men because I think in other situations, it, perhaps they would have been... Because we, we have seen in the past that they can be kind of easy to trick, but for the most part, they've been pretty good at staying awake. Yeah. Until now. Until now, because they've been fighting <laughs> a I lot. And the adrenaline wears off. And I think some of it is also they think that the, 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 the army has retreated, and so they think that they can relax. So I think yeah. there is a small way in which this has, is going to bite Badrang in the ass. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This is an interesting bit of of Brian showing rather than telling. Mm-hmm. We get that bit of like show rather than tell with with the writing. Um it it it's really interesting to make those connections after the fact as well cuz I didn't quite make that connection while I was reading. So it's just like why the fuck did they fall asleep? Yeah. <laughs> Which we're going to get to. Yeah. They do that. We're going to get to it, but like re- going over it again, it's like, "Ah, yes." <laughs> on the fighters hip they're 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 horde beasts yep and this is less a case of horde beasts being stupid and just there's actual legitimate reasons for this happening yeah they're tired the adrenaline wore off yeah whereas in the past we've had horde beasts stupid yeah and their stomachs their stomachs are full now too extra food yep yep on the fighters hill rose and Brom go about helping the injured martin joins a council of the various leaders to make plans Boldred acts as a voice of reason to help temper the hotter heads in the group. Temper? 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 Ambala brings a fishing net that had been used against them by the defenders, while the god tribe capers about in glee over this fun new game. The net gives... Uh, at least their, their horrifying, like, unsettlingness is being used to the advantage. Yeah. Like... They, they, they're they horrible, but, like, they're now, okay, everybody else is playing this game with us, and the game is we have to get into that place. Okay. And it's it's unsettling still, like I, because the god tribe are unsettling. I do love the trope of, like, this creature is terrifying, but this creature is terrifying and on our side nominally. So. Yeah. Yeah. The enemy of my enemy is, is my ally. Yeah. The net gives Martin a flash of an idea. Use the net to scale the north wall at night, while the squirrels take the south wall. He's countered by Marigold, who wonders what the defenders will be doing to let them climb so easily. Martin points to the burn shell of the Rosehip's cart. Buckler says she could roll a little further, but only a little. 
Like, Martin asks, can that still move? And Buckler is like, oh, a little? Not far, yeah. but I think, I think I can get it to move. That's all that's needed, though, since Martin says the cart can be used as a burning distraction aimed towards the front gates. He elaborates a little more, with Boldred and the Warden volunteering to drop the net over the north wall. He says he plans to have the high beasts and the big hedgehogs go over the north wall. The God tribe and the otters will go south. He will take the front gate with the cart. Grum volunteers the moles left. They can dig under the wall to add yet another entry point. With that all decided, Barkjohn says he will go with Buckler and the others to fix up the cart a little. Then he will bury his son. Martin and the others agree to go with him. They'd started this with Feldo, and they want to give him a proper end. The Roset players volunteer as well. And I'm sorry to ruin the moment, but Palum tagging along like, Palum never met him! Palum has no idea who Feldo is other than what they've told him about. It's, it's... I think, though, there's a degree where, like, this person was important to Martin, and Palum is behind Martin the entire yeah. way. But it just, it makes me think of that scene, like, when somebody pointed out in The Lord of the Rings that Frodo, or Fro Frodo? Frodo never talks to Legolas through the entire series. <laughs> yeah, he never talks to Legolas. So when Legolas so shows up, Frodo's like, like, who the hell's this elf? Like... <laughs> Like he's got no idea who this blonde guy is who just stepped in because he's never spoken to him. That's just the... I mean, all I could imagine was that scene right now because it's like Feldo and, and Palum never met. But don't don't Frodo and Legolas kind of interact at, at um, Rivendell? I mean, maybe, but it's like... There's like, you have my bow and my axe. Yeah, like they, that's it. They may not speak to each other, but Frodo knows who Legolas is. I mean, like, he saw him once, you know? But we don't know. We don't see them all talking to each other the whole time. They could have spoken at some point. Yeah, but... And, like, that's in that's in the movies. I don't remember the yeah. books very well. Uh, but it's still, that's... <laughs> I read those books a long that's time That's, like, the ago. vibes this gives me, though. It's just like, who, who are you? Why are you here? Um... Atop the fortress wall, two beasts gossip lightly as they watch the beasts outside try to fix up the cart. Talking about how... They're just like, ha Yeah. <laughs> Talking about how they wouldn't be sorry to see them leave. They fought like mad. Doubly so, that warrior squirrel. And now they hope they'd never face another like him the rest of their lives. <laughs> Bad news, guys! <laughs> <laughs> Bad Ring barks at them to stop gossiping as he passes by on inspection. And no sleeping! So, of course, the minute he's out of sight, one of the sentries props his head on the wall and says he's to take a nap. And when he's done, he'll let his buddy nap while he watches. Which is, you know, that's a valid way to do it. You take turns. Yeah, they're not both falling asleep at the same time. They're going to take turns. Except and then, they do. Except they do both happen to fall asleep. Because they don't have each other to keep each other awake. Yep. Badring goes to his longhouse for dinner, followed behind by his captains. Boggs is ready for a good drink of beer. But his good mood is rattled by a voice that sounds like Clogs, calling out to warn him that Badrang is the evil one. He'll lead them to their dooms. Come dig graves with him. Dead beasts don't hurt no one. Clog gets extremely unsettling. Mm -hmm. It is so unsettling. 
like how this concussion has affected Clog. Because like you can It'll... tell he still has his intelligence. It's just his grip has slipped. Mm-hmm. Let's see. A cracked voice came out of the shadows. Badrang is the great evil one, mates, leading y'all to your doom. Steer clear of him. Follow me and dig graves. Dead beasts can't arm ya. Boggs is confused until Crosstooth says that the crack Badring had given Clog had rattled his brains. He's not sane anymore, spouting warnings like that to anyone who will walk past. Another warning- He's apparently just been doing that the whole time. Yeah. Since he woke up from the, the blow Badring uh, cracked him. He's just been doing that, and they're all just like, yeah, nah, he's just not good in the brain box anymore. Yeah. And it's like, oh, buddy, oh, buddy. Another warning call from Clog gets Badrank to turn and shout a threat at him. Clog isn't bothered, though, promising he's got a nice, deep, quiet place for the evil one waiting. Spooked... Can I... Can... Well, spooked, Badrang hurries into his longhouse as Clog sings an eerie little tune. It is... Oh, God. Yeah, uh, Badrang is just like, stay clear of me, you crazy old coot, or I'll let daylight through your hide, do you hear me? And and Clog's response is, ha ha ha, you can't see me because I'm invisible. I've got a nice dark hole waiting for you, evil one. And then the thing that he sings is he, he peeks out from under the, the upturned wheelbarrow of a freshly dug grave. He's like, in a fresh grave. Uh, one paw in the grave metaphor. Uh... <laughs> is very obvious here. I'm our fistode and our famole, and I'll bury yous all in a nice deep hole. Down, down, where it's still and cold, and you never live to get old. <laughs> like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, it's, it's... It is unfortunate what happens to Clog, but I think that Brandy utilizes this in such a good way, because it's unsettling. Yeah. And you can see it as we go forward. It gets to Badrang a little. Like, it... It, it it's it's such a small thing but it's little and, things and it's, that tip the balance yeah it's these little things they tip the balance and it kind of compounds upon what's happening around him and it may not be like a specified oh this is getting to him but you can see it yeah so this the end of this book is so good when all of our plots come back together Brian is very good at weaving the plots back together. Well, I do have some complaints, but we'll get to that at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Outside the walls... At this oh, point in time! <laughs> at this point in time, everything is good, yes. Um, <laughs> Outside the walls, everyone has been fed and is resting before the night attack. Rose and Martin stare at the stars together. She muses about how odd it is that the same stars shine over this horrid place that shine over her beloved Noonvale. And what was Martin thinking? He says not much of anything. He'd been watching Grum, who was out cold with his ladle in his paws. Well, Martin's mind is clear. He has a goal. He's focused. Yep. He's just kind of zoned out, looking at Grum. Rose chuckles, moving the ladle to Grum's side. He was a good creature, protecting her since she was a babe. And when they returned to Noonvale, Martin would take would make many more mole friends. Martin would be hailed as a hero. He's puzzled as to why she thinks that. She says it was his toppling the sycamore. They'd been at it for seasons and managed it. Oh, they'd been at it for seasons and he'd managed it in a day. Instead of countering, he deflects by telling her she should get some sleep. 
he'll stay by her side while she does. She let me let me just uh, point out red flags popping up <laughs> all around Rose as this conversation is going. She she is just red flag city. And I'm pretty sure this is the well spoilers everyone. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is the last time she and Martin talk. I think so. Because she dozes off and he keeps a silent vigil alone with his thoughts. Martin wakes up a lot at the edge between midnight and dawn. The groups are all silently moved to their positions. The old cart is wobbly, but Buckler promises it'll make one last good run. Martin and about 50 archers are all that is left in the camp. I'm sorry, you said that this is the last time they talked, and I hadn't thought about that, and I'm like, oh no, the last time they talked was making plans for the future. Mm-hmm. No! It's the ultimate red flag! It's the ultimate tragedy! It's the ultimate red flag! <laughs> <laughs> if our listeners haven't picked up on it yet, they will soon. Yeah. <laughs> the sentry rat... Grezzle is enjoying a dream of being back on his old ship, watching a group of beasts dance around a fire. And like, I know they're horrible, awful creatures, but there's just something so cute and sad that he misses being out on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not horrible. Like, I, I really, I really wish that we had this, like, they're not horrible, awful by nature. But unfortunately, we keep getting that vermin are horrible and awful by nature. Brian is very much a a nature over nurture versus nurture. Yeah, nature over nurture. <sighs> I mean, we, we could also argue that it's a case of um, systemic racism like it is in our world where it's a case of that these specific species have been so ground down into only having certain options that they can't really break out of it to find something better. You know, it's like, even if they want to be good, who's going to trust them? Even if they want to go live peacefully and actually work the land, who's going to give them that chance? They're going to be like, oh, God, there's a stoat in the neighborhood. Well, now we've got to run him off or move someplace nicer, you know? But, yeah. That makes it worse. It does, sorry. (laughs) That makes it worse. to to bring the mood back to... Sorry. To bring the mood back? Hold on, wait. (laughs) A, a slip from his leaning position. We're moving laterally. <laughs> We're moving laterally. A slide to your left. Slide to your right. Crisscross. Ding, ding. Everybody clap your hands. Bop, 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 bop. Yeah. A slip from his leaning position and a cracked chin on the wall top wakes him up. It takes a moment for him to realize the fire was real and barreling towards the gate. He hollers an alarm. Most of the other sentries have been asleep too, so it all devolves into chaos. Badrang races from the longhouse, hurrying to rally Beast to the front gate. Clog mocks him, saying, The ghost of his burnt ship, it's come for revenge! <laughs> Roanoke gives a shout of warning to the archers around her and Martin as she gives the steady, loyal cart one last final shove towards the gate. She falls flat as Balaw orders the archers into three ranks, each rank taking turns firing and reloading. What's extremely funny is like we think of when we think of the badgers in these books, we think of them as like almost like bears, I think. Oh yeah. Because that's how I always see them. They're big, they're hulking, they're muscular. And like badgers are are big and muscular for what they are. But they they are they are diggers, they're burrowers. So like her falling flat, she is definitely flat. Yeah. She is flat on the ground 
Like if you if you've <laughs> ever seen a badger sploot, they can sploot. They can sploot. <laughs> the fire blinds the Walltop defenders and they take pretty severe damage. Badrang tries to get them focused on putting out the fire, but even as he grabs one weasel to bark orders at him, it slumps dead from an arrow in his paws. Like, God! <laughs> I don't know why that scene took me, took me hit me so hard, but yeah. I actually had to reread that particular bit, like, a second time because I misread it at first. Yeah. Because I was like, wait. Did Badrang just die? And then I was read it again. I was like, no, 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 no. He did not just yeah. die. So the net drop works perfectly, and the shrews and hedgehogs swarm up their side. The squirrels and the otters are getting up their own side as well. The god tribe has made it to the top and dropped ladder-like ropes for the otters to climb. They're basically ropes with, like, sticks in them at intervals to make it into a ladder. You know, like the ones that you would, like, have for treehouses and right. shit. They're super easy to make. Yeah. And if you're they agile enough. They do twist enough. like a bitch. Yeah. Hearing the... They're those ones that you see at carnivals that twist and turn and you can't make it up them. Yeah. Like... Hearing the commotion start, the moles get to work under the wall. Palum asks Rose if wars are always this complicated, and she has to admit she doesn't know. Uh, warning, everyone. <laughs> this is also the last time we see Rose speak. Hey. Martin is satisfied to see the cart has done its job. The flames are into the wood now, and no amount of sand or water will pull them out from the next from the angle they're at. And no amount of sand or water will put them out from the angle they're at. And I love it when plans go smoothly like this. Like it's all coming together so well. I love it when a plan comes together. Right? It's so satisfying. <laughs> Three people are gonna get that joke, and I love you for getting the joke. Roanoke crawls back to the group, asking what's next. Martin says he's to go climb the northern net. Bala and the others follow, except for Roanoke, who's too tired. She stays behind to use the abandoned bows and arrows, lamenting that she wasn't a season or so younger, to have the energy to climb the net with them. She's she's just, she's old. She's just like, all right, I got this little bow. I'm just going to shoot some arrows. It's it. fine. She just needs to catch her yeah. breath. <laughs> She does. Hoo-hoo, she does. Knowing the gate is a lost cause, Badring splits his forces into pikes in the courtyard and two to guard the north and south walls. He rushes into those long He rushes into his longhouse, feeling the cold chill of certain doom. His fortress is now a trap for him. He tries sneaking out the back window, driven by terrified thoughts of his former slave's revenge. And here is where we see Feldo's actions really coming home to roost because if he hadn't beaten Badring the way he did, I don't think Badring would be suffering the terror he is right now because mm -hmm. fellow this, instilled a trauma in him. This combined, I think with like clogs, eerie, whatever the fuck he's doing is really got Badring like, Oh, in no. a Badring way. Oh, no. Ah, <laughs> Keep reading. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm divorcing you. Again. <laughs> okay. But the problem is, the window opens to the north wall, and he sees the hordes of beasts fighting his own horde, and then, silhouetted against the sky, Martin. 
the one beast who defied him above all, who was truly a warrior, who was slaying Badrang's beasts without a thought. Badrang turns tail and runs before he can be seen. He's basically sticking tight to the wall in the shadows to try and escape. Which, spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Nope, it does not work. <laughs> because the otters leave the squirrels to the wall tops, diving down into the courtyard to cause chaos among the pikemen. Just as they take the last ones out, the gate timbers begin to crumble. Starwort hollers out a warning, just in time too. Roanoke charges through the flames with a mighty roar. She lands, and the otters help put out the embers of flame in her fur. She's quite pleased with herself. She's still got some life to her yet. I read that bit and immediately messaged Kit, like, Roanoke, I'm free on Tuesday. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm extremely gay for Roanoke. That leap through the flames fans myself. Miss Roanoke, I'm free on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah oh, the, it's so good i'm so glad we get a badger who gets to be badass and survives it's, it's the lady badgers who get to be badass and survive it is on the north wall top crosstooth tries to reach a free space to escape he slays shrews left and right umbala faces him but is only just holding her own until martin comes in with an assi assisting kick to crosstooth's back Ambala kills the fox and calls out to Martin. He doesn't hear her though, because he is too focused on the fleeting glimpse he caught of the fleeting of the fleeing Badrang. Badrang spots the mole's tunnel. He knows it's now or never to escape. Doubly so when he hears Martin bellow a challenge behind him. He rushes forward, bashing aside Grum and well, Badrang rushes forward bashing aside Grum and taking a fierce set of blows from Rose before knocking her fatally against a nearby wall. Like, she lands three or four punishing blows on him. I think she even takes out one of his eyes and does big damage, but he throws her so hard and she hits in just the right way. Palum stops Badrang's attempt to flee by, sim by the simple act of rolling into a spiky ball, like he is blocking the entire tunnel. Badrang has time for only one savage swipe of his sword at Palum before Martin hauls him back, smacking him hard with the shrew blade and calling for him to stand and fight, coward that he is. An echo parallel of what Feldo said. It's no contest. Badrang scores many small strikes against Martin with his father's sword, but Martin is unstoppable. He is driving Badrang. Like, it's clear there's no contest between these two. They end up nose to nose, and Martin says he was back as he had said he'd be to end Badrang. He throws the shrew blade away, locking paws around Badrang's, and turns the sword hilt, turning it slowly, unstoppably, to point at Badrang's throat. The stoat has time for one more terrified plea, a promise to give Martin anything, and Martin kills him. He has just enough energy to pull the sword free before collapsing. He can see Dawn over the edge of the fortress walls, and Rose laying dead in front of him. He mutters to her that they could have cut the sycamore down with his father's sword before passing out. And can I read? 
Can I read? Yes, it? please do. <laughs> Let's see. Get up, you scum. Up on your paws and face me. Badrang scrambled up, holding the longsword of Luke the warrior before him with both paws. He rushed Martin. The onlookers gave a cry of dismay as the sword raked Martin's chest. Heedless of it, the warrior began striking back. Steel clashed upon steel as the young mouse with the short sword battered Badrang round and round the ruins of the compound. Badrang flailed out in a panic, catching his enemy on the shoulder, arm, and paw. They locked blades and stood with their noses touching, Badrang's eyes wide with horror as he stared into the face of the snarling, unstoppable warrior who was forcing him backwards as he gritted out, I told you I would return someday and put an end to you. Wrenching his face away, the stoat bit deep into his foe's shoulder, only to find himself lifted bodily and hurled hard against the wall. Martin flung the shrew sword from him, locking both paws around Badrang's grip on the sword. The tyrant wailed as he felt the warrior's inexorable power turning the weapon until its point was hovering close to his heart. Badrang's nerve deserted him. Don't kill me, he sobbed. You can have it all. The fortress. Everything. The tyrant of Marshank's mouth fell open, and his head lolled to one side as he fell forward, carrying Martin to the ground underneath him. With his last vestige of strength, the young mouse pushed the slain foe beast from him and tugged his father's sword loose. Lying on his side, with sand crusting the blood of his war wounds, Martin saw Dawn's light beam across the face of Rose, where she lay close to him by the wall. The merciful darkness closed in on him as he murmured to her, Rose, we could have chopped the sycamore down with this. Like, I, I didn't expect Brian to kill her off. I honestly expected, like, something would happen where she'd be like, I can't go with you. Like, I thought it was going to be a case of, like, she'd be able to tell him, like, I can't go with you. I'm sorry. Or, like, I need to stay. Like, she couldn't go with him or, I don't know, amnesia, something. something. But no, us the entire book, something is going to happen to Rose. Badring, is this something? Yeah. Me. Oh, no. Oh, no. We didn't think of this. Like, damn. Brian sure went there. Brian sure did. Uh, and you know what? For once, he plays it really straight. You know, because Brian is... Like, it is... He's, he's got a bad habit of, like, <sighs> characters will mourn for one or two pages and then move on. We get chapters. Yeah. We get... Oh. <laughs> the otter drums beat out of victory, accompanied by the cheers of the fighters, until Roanoke steps up, telling them to silence the drum. The victory had come at a high price. And a little part of me is like, oh, so it's a high price because Rose died, not all the other creatures who helped. It's not It's not a high price. It's a bitter mm. price. There's, there's a difference there. Brome works on healing Martin, muttering that this was all his fault. If he had not left home, Balog comforts him. It was no beast's fault except for bad rings. And it's like, you know what? This is another reason like Balog. He's right. It's not their fault that this happened. They did not start this. They had to end it. They didn't ask for yep. this. They, they, like, it, Brome, it, Brome, if, 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 if Badrang hadn't been there, Brome could have wandered the countryside and been fine. Mm -hmm. 
Brome wandering the countryside and getting caught is not the start of the problems. It all started with Badrang. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was not his fault at all. It's none of theirs' fault. So, Grum has two large bandages on his side and tears running down his face. Buckler has to speak for him since he'd lost his voice from crying. They are burying the dead. What are they to do with Rose? Brom says he's taking her home. It's what she would have wanted. Once more, Brom blames himself. This time, it's Buckler who says it wasn't his fault. Or the fault of any beast there. It's specifically, you're not to blame, Meister. Nor Marthen, nor no beast here. Like, oh. <laughs> this whole chapter has a very somber tone to it that we don't really get that often, like in the previous books. I think we got it a little bit in Moss Flower. A little bit, yes. Right? Yeah. We got it in Moss Flower to a degree because there were high, like in Moss Flower, high prices were paid for that yeah. land. And in this, the price wasn't high, but yeah, it was bitter. Rose was loved by everyone she met. Yeah. And to lose her in this fight has affected everyone who knew her. And even the people who didn't because of the way that it has affected the leaders. Because the leaders were the ones who knew her. It is affecting everyone. Mm-hmm. Because they can see and their morale has completely disappeared. They've won, but at what right. cost? And not even in, like, a jokey way where, like, you know, we've said in the past they won, but at what cost? This is legitimately, they've won, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. A rather Pyrrhic victory. And it was necessary. I hate, I, it goes again on a Ruby rant. <laughs> I'm sorry. Rona? The character's name was Pyrrha Nikos. I live in hell forever. <laughs> they, they laid it out for you right there. They it's did. In she was name. a favorite flag. She wore red. Her hair was red. She wore a red sash. She was a walking red flag. And I still live in hell. <laughs> Roanoke looks around the burnt out and corpse filled fortress. She says she doesn't know where they're bound, but they should leave this place. All agree. Martin is placed on a stretcher, and Brome invites all who don't have a set home to return to, to drop their weapons and return with him to Noonvale. I think the way Boldred talks about it, she says, there's been too much death and grief here. It seems to be part of the very stones. Mm -hmm. We'll leave what's left of Marshank standing as a reminder to any bad ones of what free and peaceful creatures can do when they're driven to it. Mm -hmm. Because that's what it is. They were like yes a lot of the the people who joined them were fighters and warlike but not in the way where they were actively seeking it yeah. out they're just they, protecting they themselves from ex- what's around they them. enjoyed an excuse for a good scrap but like a good scrap is different from i'm gonna kill all of you yeah and this is they were all driven to this because they were not it's said by star War, like uh, not star war by the the um the the hedgehog lady yeah that um it was only a matter of time before badrang started coming inland for slaves Mm -hmm. they were not actively seeking him out before they were just like he's still he's there we're here we will keep to ourselves and not go try and fight that because on their own they couldn't yeah 
It's... <sighs> so, a pile of weapons rest abandoned in the center of Marshank. Companions and friends part ways. The warden herds the god tribe home. Boldred and Roanoke stick with Martin on his stretcher, where he still holds his father's sword. Bala and the Rosehips go with Starwart and his otters. Before she leaves, Queen Umbala gives the shrew sword she'd given to Martin to Rose, laying it next to her body. She promises her people Can will I... always remember the brave Rose Mouse. Can I read that bit out? Yes, you may. <laughs> this bit super affected me when I read this. I was, I had, this was last week, I was, I had just gotten back from uh, being at an outdoor market all day and hanging out with friends. My shoes had broken, my feet hurt. I was reading this while soaking my feet in the bath. And I was so affected by this line specifically. Queen Umbala stood with her pygmy shrews. They were the last to leave. One of the shrews had picked up the sword she had once given to Martin. Waddling behind Brome, she called out, Wait, mouse! Brome halted. He watched as the queen of the pygmy shrews signaled the otters carrying Rose's uh, bear to lower it. Placing the small sword beside the mouse maid's still form, Umbala spoke in her curt, vigorous manner. Rose mouse, brave mouse. We remember her name all seasons. She waved to the pygmy shrews, and they set off south along the shoreline for their own territory. Very good. It's extremely good because Umbala was one of the first people outside of the main group to meet Rose. Yeah. She was one of the first of that war council to meet her and know how fierce and caring she is. Or she was. Yeah. So she understands to a degree that I don't think the others do besides Martin and Grum and Palum. It's just, it's a heavy, heavy thing. It's heavy, and her her tribe is not necessarily warlike. Her tribe just lives in a hostile environment. And, you know, they're not so stupid she under- either. No, they're not. They're extremely, extremely clever and smart creatures that just Brian, Brian writes badly. Yep. Um, but we get this bit at the end where Brian shows them as they really are without that lens that everybody else has been viewing them through they are good people and i just this that bit really affected me to the point where like i'm you can hear me i'm struggling (laughs) and then we move from that into mm. The next bit is... The now empty of the living fortress... Tap, 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 tap. Let me start that over, please. Sorry. In the now empty of the living fortress, seabirds begin to swoop to peck at the vermin corpses. They're run up by Clog, who'd hidden during all the fighting. Quite mad now, he talks to each corpse as he sees faces he recognizes. Once he gets to Badring, he mocks him, but then promises he'll bury him in a nice, cool grave with rocks on top. After all, it's finally his fortress. He has all the time in the world to bury them all. Above, 
the seabirds turn in the sky. Like, this is creepy. Brian does a good job of making this absolutely terrifying because, you know, Clog is alive, but he's not going to live for much longer. Not unless he can find himself safe food and safe water, not to mention he's going to be surrounded Mm -hmm. by dead, so God knows what kind of diseases are going to start up. And the birds, birds, which are probably going to kill him. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just... Yeah. Can I read what he says to Bowing? Yeah, because it's a good scene. I'm sorry. If it is, it is. And he he is going around. He is he he finds, uh, he finds cross tooth. He finds box. He finds stump tooth. And then he worked his way around until he found what he was looking for. Bad rang. Ah, where's your fine dreams of empires now, ye swab? Met a warrior who was more than a match for ye. Well, we're gonna be here forever now, you and me. So let's not quarrel and fall out with each other, matey. Tell your what, I'll dig you a smart new grave, nice and deep, I, with rocks piled atop and your name carved all handsome like on one of them. The seabirds wheeled and soared over the lone figure below, sitting in the slave compound, as he argued and gossiped with the dead stoat, who made no replies. He stared through sightless eyes at the unclouded blue sky of the eastern coast. Well, then we get a little bit of the gentle time skip that Brian likes to do at the end of the books because summer fades and autumn rolls in gently. Martin is with Polykeen, along with Grum, Pelham, and Roanoke. All four have worked hard to help him recover. He had, still looking young and fit, but he hasn't spoken a word since, eyes still far distant. One morning, Polykeen senses something and asks Martin to go off to chop some wood. When he does, the others each try to follow, and she scolds them. He's gone to cry. Leave him be. Roanoke confesses she'd heard him the day before, and now, and, and how hard it must be for him. He never speaks of Rose. Polykin says he likely never will. She's buried and locked deep in his heart. Grum calls him a great warrior and laments that he will never return to Noonvale. The memories will hurt too much. And uh, here's where a big complaint of mine at the end comes out. Because, mm-hmm. like, yes, we, we've justified why them taking so much time to get to Noonvale uh, occurred. It was so Martin and Rose could really build a relationship. And, you know, like, sometimes filler's good. Sometimes filler is what you need to help characters really develop and get to know each other. But then you get situations like this where we had all that filler which built up the relationship... So at the end here, when it's now all over, it just feels so incredibly rushed. Like, it just... Uh, it's dissatisfying. I don't like it. This should have been given more time. It's just, yeah. It It is... It, it's... Yeah, with all of the the, the fucking faffing about they did before the fact that we don't get to see more of martin's recovery is unfortunate so let's see maybe lose my spot here okay after breakfast martin speaks for the first time since marshank he is leaving roanoke asks if he'd like to go with them to noonvale and he says no he can never return he's going south Grum asks, what is he to do there? 
Martin responds that he may someday become a peaceful beast. Until then, he must be what he is. A warrior. He will never speak of Noonvale again. It's too precious and rare a place to let evils find. No one will know where he'd come from. When a puzzled Palum asks what he will say, Martin says he'll just tell part of the truth. He defended his home from sea rats. When he knew his father wouldn't return, he took to wandering. After all, who would understand what they'd all been through and lost? As they all lose themselves to memories, Polly King cleans off the table. They say goodbye the next day on a chilly, timeless morning. It's sad, a little awkward, and heartbreaking all around. Roanoke suggests they try one more holler of the old war cry. The air is split by a yell of fur and freedom. I don't, I don't know. I don't really kind of like that part. Yeah. But Roanoke's doing her best. It fits in a bit with like how we've seen things in other books. Like Those war cries are very important. To yeah, them. but I still don't like it. I mean, but Roanoke's a badger. Yeah, so that's her. That is her. This is how the badgers yeah. are. Pollykin watches him go. She also sees the future he has coming. Quietly, she says she had told him so. The tragedy would come if they'd return to Marshank. But now, even with years of toil ahead of him, he will find joy. Someday, all will know his name. And that's... I want to read what she says. Go ahead. Her, I told you twould be bad fate if in you returned to Marshank with thy mouse maiden. Now there be only you left, youngin. Boar, you got some hard days to go yet a while, though happiness will be thine in time yet to come. But for all seasons, every beast shall remember thy name, Marthany Warrior. Like, I know. <laughs> and I'm just remembering the bit from an earlier chapter where Martin says that he will keep the time that he spent in Noonvale locked in his heart. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And with that, we return to the present. At least the present for this book. In Cavern Hole, a night and a day have passed during the telling of the tale, with not one beast falling asleep during... We must remember. Does everybody remember that the start of this book started at Redwall? Do we remember? Because yeah. I sure forgot. Yeah, it did. So much was happening. I forgot this was a story being told. Abbott's... Like, oof. Abbott Saxus says Polykin had been right. Martin had found his peace at the founding of Redwall. But how had she known this tale? Meaning, uh... Abrecia. Um... Mm-hmm. And Bulltip is the one who answers. Abretia, Abretia is Brom's Abretia is Brom's direct descendant, and he Palm's many greats grandson. Simeon touches her face and says she's inherited Rose's beauty. We get a little bit more of Simeon being weirdly magic, yeah. like he somehow knew what Rose actually looked like. Um, She shows them a scallop locket she keeps around her neck with a painting of Rose and Martin inside. Sax disagrees she could be Rose's twin. And that was surely Martin, even if he looked a bit younger than his tapestry. How had such a thing come to be made? It had been given to her by a... Given to her family by an owl named Emilet, made by her mother, Boldred. 
She and Bulltip had decided to come to Redwall after hearing stories of it their whole lives and stories of Martin. She also has a gift for the Abbey. The abbot is puzzled, asking Abrushi to explain what it is. Because she, like, hands over a lump of dirt and what looks like a, just a little sprig to him. And he's just like, Whoa, what is this? And it is a cutting from a rose planted over Rose's grave by Grum. It blooms late sometimes, so it was named the late rose. <laughs> and the rose got me. The locket. The rose. The rose and the locket. That's what finally got me. Just. God, it's so cheesy. It's so cloying, but I love it. I'm mad about it, but I cry. And we must remember, the late rose comes up later. Uh-huh. The late well, rose, technically earlier. Well, but... yeah, but like in the future, <laughs> it comes up in Matameo. Mm-hmm. Because it was going to be the season of the late rose. Yep. Yep. We know where that rose came from now and the context behind it. And it's extremely important to Redwall, to the Abbey. Yep. Simeon promises that it would be planted and cherished. Saxtus says Martin brought the Abbey strength. Now Rose will bring it beauty. And the pair could stay as long as they wished. Their spirits brought back together after many, many years. Abrecia says they wanted to stay until spring. Once more, the abbot says they are welcome. Any honest, good-natured beast would find safe haven at Redwall. And she may visit and stay any time she's passing by. And that's it. That's the end of that book. The end of this book definitely comes at you with a sledgehammer, don't it? It sure do. It sure do. On to the shelf it goes. So I'm hurting, so let's get on to the question <laughs> so I can so I can slap a warm washcloth over my eyes and pass out for a bit. Uh, <laughs> Where did my copy of Mariel go? I don't know. Mine's going to go in my closet because like I'm slowly shuffling books around on my bookshelf, so every time I finish a Red Ball book, I put it in my closet just so I can like visibly see the... Yeah, I have them shifting around on... Uh, I've got two shelves immediately next to my desk. The one above it is all the books we've read, and the one underneath it are the ones we still have to get to. I just don't know what I did with my copy of Maria. <laughs> okay. She's somewhere. So, <laughs> what was your favorite weird food in this book? I don't really have an opinion either way. I we still, were too busy with the fighting. Somebody make me a deeper and ever uh, turnip and tater and beetroot pie, please. I yes, want the, the it. constant I wish. I want it. I want it. What? Why hasn't there been a Redwall pop-up cafe? That's like the thing the past few years are like themed cafes. Where's not, the pop-up it's people? It's not as popular as the things like Redwall itself is not a series that is as popular as the things that have gotten pop-up cafes. It's not like getting like, I know, like a but... Moomin pop-up cafe. Everybody yeah. knows Moomin. <laughs> so what was the animal that appeared that surprised you slash an animal subvert expectations? I think the warden showing up with the god tribe a little bit yeah a, i thought he'd show up with his lizards i don't i did not expect the lizards to show up but i didn't expect the warden to agree to shepherd the god tribe for this i really want to know what that conversation was yeah it must have been pretty wild the Bulldog must have had to agree to something yeah okay what was your favorite part so far honestly like the actual execution of the final attack. Mm-hmm. That 
the because in, the entirety of that last battle was extremely yeah. well written. It brought all of the the loose ends together in a way that made sense and was very well written. But if I had to pick a specific thing, <laughs> Roanoke yeeting herself through the fire. Hooray! Yeah, there you go. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How well do you think this book could be read out Extremely loud? Extremely well. This yeah, one's... this one's definitely sectioned off. Yeah, it better. it definitely like if we were reading it out loud, I think that the bit where they were like just kind of going to Noonvale would read better than reading it to ourselves or as we like for the podcast. It would read better out loud because you would be able to feel that time passing a little bit better reading it bit by bit rather than a big chunk at once. Yeah. Um, the battle would have been more suspenseful in a way that would have been really interesting. You could put that emphasis in certain places and then stop right before something happens to make the kids yeah. go, oh my god, why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Let's see. Then we have, from Charcoal on Discord, did the ending of the book surprise you? It surprised me as a kid, and I also bawled my eyes out. So what do you all think of it? And we're going to take this first part of the question. Uh, yes, it it surprised me to an extent. Like, it's I a, did not expect Rose to be killed yeah. as she was. Yeah, it's a big, it's a yes and no. Like, the ending of the book, like, them beating Badrang obviously didn't surprise me. Martin killing Badrang didn't surprise me. Martin is allowed to kill people in a way that other warriors of Redwall aren't always allowed to, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, he, quote-unquote, kills Sarmina, uh, he drowns her. Um, yeah. He he kills Badrang. Um, directly. Directly. Uh, like he like I was expecting that. I was not expecting Rose to die. This was the biggest thing this... where it's like we haven't really had love interests that have been so integral to the books like Rose has been. Like, we've had the love interests in, like, the other books where they've been there, and they have existed, and they've done important things. Rose was in the thick of it in a way that we haven't gotten before, right? And yeah. so, in previous books, the love interests haven't died. Rose dies in... I don't... She's not fridged. Fridging implies something completely no. different. She dies in a yeah. way that really puts into context a lot of how Martin acts moving forward. She is not yeah. the linchpin the same way that, like, Mr. Freeze's wife is to all of his actions. But, which is where the term fridging comes from. Um, Actually, no, it's not. That's where I've always attributed uh, it, because she's literally fridged, but, you know. <laughs> no, uh, trigger warning for the actual origin of the word term fridging. Uh, it is, I can't remember, I think it's a Green Lantern comic. Mm, that makes sense. But basically, one, one of the DC superheroes has a girlfriend. The villain kills her, chops her up, and puts her in the superhero's what fridge. What the fuck? Which literally only happens in the plot. So the superhero gets angry enough to actually go after the villain. Fridging is basically the trope that provides, like, it, it's it's giving reason for the the oh, man yeah. angst. The, the the woman exists only to be a plot point where the man is sad. But that Rose, is what fridging Rose is. Rose isn't that. No. And 
She's definitely the not. way that she dies is so quick. It's quickly brutal in a way that like yeah. we know this is how Badrang is. It's not out of character for Badrang. If if Grum hadn't had his ladle in the way, Grum would have He'd also have died. died. Because the way that Badrang yeah. hits Grum is he smacks the ladle into his head. Yeah. And Grum doesn't die. He just gets knocked out, but Rose gets thrown into a wall and hits her head so hard she dies. It's entirely... Probably snaps her neck. Yeah, it's entirely... I don't... I didn't read it as snapping her neck, but it is entirely possible that that is how it was meant. The way I read it is that she just hit her head that hard. Because you can't. Yeah. If you hit your head hard enough, you can just die. Um, yeah. And it's entirely possible that in the time that Martin was fighting Badrang, she was still, like, partially alive, you know? But there was no right. time to stop. Right. So she... Minecraft death message was doomed to fall. Yeah. That is a fun one to get because it's really hard to get that one. But anyway, um, it's uh. so well written in and the emotional impact of it. Like, this is why Martin the Warrior, when I was much younger, was one of my favorites. I do like, like I have said before, because of the way that I read books, it was escapism. So I don't remember a lot of these books, but reading it again, I know I reacted in a similar way. Yeah. I know that I, I reacted to the end of this book in a way like I read this book once and never read it again. Because it very likely upset me that much when I was much younger, when I was a kid. To have a character that I have grown to care for and potentially when I was younger identify with. Rose is one mm -hmm. of those characters that like a young girl would identify with. She's ferocious. She's caring. She makes sure that the main character doesn't, you know, get his head cut off type of vibe. She's somebody that I wanted to be. And she dies. And so I never read this book again until now. And I've read multiple other Redwall books multiple times over. This one I only ever read once in a different way than Matameo. Matameo, I read it once and was like, okay, that book was bad. <laughs> <laughs> and this one I read it once and was like, I can never, this book made me feel bad. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so, it's so good. It's, it's so good. It has, this book has its issues the same as all of them do. Uh, but its issues are are different, you know? I feel like this book is kind of the culmination of what we want most from Brian. Because the issues it has are a little different than it had in the other books, right? Like, mm -hmm. they're, they're issues for sure. The pacing is still an issue, but it's it's different. The way the pacing is done is different. Because this book is definitely one that if we read it out loud, we wouldn't be talking about these pacing issues. Whereas mm -hmm. some of the other ones, if we read it out loud, there would probably still be some pacing issues. The way the characters are done, like we still get the racism and a lot of the racism is still very similar. We get new racism. Um, but with the way that the characters are written, we don't get some of the same issues that we've had in the past books. We get... Mm -hmm. A few newer issues that honestly I can't even think of them right now because they weren't that big of a deal, right? Mm -hmm. We just 
have what we have at the end. I can't make my thoughts more coherent than that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Our listeners, yes. if you want to try and figure out what I'm saying, please send us questions for me to answer. I will probably have a much better time talking all of this out through text than actually verbally. Um, and speaking of the questions, yeah. <laughs> let's get to the second half of this. Um, Charcoal's second half is that they have a theory that as a kid that all the cast of Martin the Warrior had current day ancestors. Felda would have Jess, Martin would have Matthias, Grum would have Formal, etc. I know this isn't actually the case, but how would you feel about it if it were the case? Also, Gonfis Brom's descendant, headcanon. Thoughts? I think that even if they're not, like, their descendants, because the, we know Matthias is specifically not Martin's direct descendant. Martin didn't have children. He's, he's like, a reincarnation slash a sort of slightly possession situation. Yeah, it feels when it comes like. to the warriors of Redwall, like Matthias and Matameo and the other warriors, uh, Marielle, etc., they're not mm -hmm. Martin's direct descendants. They are by blood. by blood, at least, but they have that same spirit. Like he says directly, I think Martin says, "Like my son of my spirit," or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's 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 which. Which is also a very Christian thing, yeah. too. That's an extremely Christian uh, thought or feeling. Because, like, Christians don't believe in reincarnation, but we absolutely do believe in, like... So, like, it's a very weird thing in Christianity where, like, you know, you can't be possessed by a demon, but a lot of people don't talk about how there's also a subtle thing where you can be possessed by the spirit of Christ or, you know, the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. can possess you to help you do good acts. Mm -hmm. It's basically like the opposite of a demonic possession <laughs> where you are being helped to do good. Yeah. And Martin is like that Holy Spirit in that he possesses or helps his people to do good. Yeah, and even if, it, and going a little bit further more into like the, the sex of Christianity, there are, they may not believe in reincarnation, but you know, we hear a lot about how like you're exactly like your grandfather type of vibe, right? Mm. Like mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. sound look and act exactly like ex uh like family member from the past right like grandfather great-grandfather and yeah. it's it's not reincarnation it's not possession but it's there's it's, just people uh, are people and you get reoccurrences mm -hmm. of like certain like ways that people act because of the way that they're raised the way that their family treats them things like that and just mm -hmm. how we are as human beings and to get back to, like, the ancestor-descendant thing, I think that a lot of these, it's less ancestor, more parallels. Yeah. Jess is a parallel. Matthias is a parallel. Formal, uh, in many in many of the formals, I'm not going to say all of them, but many of them are a parallel to <laughs> Grum. Gonf is definitely kind of a parallel to Brome, if Brome had gone more the route of being a player rather than what he is also like wait a second gonf can't be descended from brome <laughs> wait a second <laughs> they could be related but they can't be descended gonf knew martin <laughs> yeah i was gonna say the big problem with that is gonf is like martin's age yeah, so like... like i'm sorry charcoal but that is straight out <laughs> they could be related Not to mention how yeah yeah it's like no 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 let's not with that <laughs> like, wait a let's, second. let's not yeah okay Next question from Sarpedon ben. on Discord. Ben. 
Hi, Ben. His question is, do you think Martin became such close friends with Gonf because he was a singer too and reminded him of Rose? <laughs> Suffering. There's definitely parallels there. there. There are definitely some parallels there. I don't think it was a hundred percent because I Gonf does have a lot of brome in him in a way. So I think it was less specifically Rose and more Gonf just reminded him of these two siblings from his past. Mm -hmm. in a very positive way like he's immediately just very like friendly and good friends with Gonf uh to to the point where it's it like if you're reading it you're like damn he just kind of accepted Gonf real fast huh yeah and reading he adopted this this boy. yeah and reading the Martin the Warrior you can kind of see why Gonf is very much the kind of person that Martin wants to be friends with because of that reminder mm -hmm. It's, it's good. And it's good shit. There's the second half of Ben's question. Are Also, were you satisfied by the end of Bad Ring? He actually fell to a protagonist, not any kind of environmental kill or accident. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. I am satisfied. Finally, they get to kill yes. the bad guy. And, like, he kills him in a good way, too. Like, he's not ranting. He's not raving. He's not going on. He does what Feldo should have done. Mm -hmm. He makes a queen. A queen. Hep, hep. He makes a clean, sure strike. Yeah. He ends it. And that's how it should have gone for Feldo. But, you know, revenge is bad. Mm -hmm. um, Let's see. We had some so other I, I think that's also commentary that, as well. Sorry, I'm yeah, looking. But going. that's while you're doing that. But that's also like the difference between Feldo and Martin in this book is that Feldo was solely out for revenge. Like, yes, he was kind of protecting the others, but he wanted revenge. Whereas Martin was cognizant and aware that he needs to get rid of bad rain mm -hmm. or these creatures will never be free he's it, doing it also for revenge but also because he wants to prioritize the freedom of the others that mm -hmm. is why he is a warrior he protects those who can't protect himself mm -hmm. themselves uh so we had uh some commentary from super sky lake about like some comments we've made in previous recordings uh brian has said many times that he intentionally made good characters good and bad ones bad Moral ambiguity wasn't uh, was something he didn't want to have in his books, which I can see. I mean, that there is not a yeah. lot of moral ambiguity in Brian's books. Something that I don't know if I 100% agree with is the next bit of Skylake's comments, which is I feel like moral ambiguity in children's books is relatively new. As globalization marched on and people came into contact with way more content, how we think had to become more complex to keep up. So the simple binary of good mm. and evil just won't work anymore. We realize way sooner that there are more than two ways to live or do things or respond to a situation, and we sometimes can't even compare them sometimes. And we can see some of this thinking slowly sleeping in in Martin the Warrior, but Brian has always been conservative with themes because he's a fairly conservative guy from what we know. who's already like 50-70 while writing these books, and so it is not... Uh, 5270 while writing these books so it's not surprising that he would be and like to a degree I disagree with this moral ambiguity is not new in older children's books it's we just think of it this way because we now have this young adult genre right We've, well okay we, talked we a want to talk about, about moral we want to talk about moral ambiguity if I if we want to talk about being new or not I think it's less that it's new and more if you think about it, if you read the old actual fairy tales, like, aside from the fact that the Grimm brothers were racist assholes, um, 
Like if you read a lot of old fairy tales, there is moral ambiguity in those old fairy tales in some of them. There is a case of like, yeah, this little girl is the good guy, but she still totally killed a person. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, um, especially in the then, original versions of a lot of these, there's a lot more ambiguity in certain characters. Like there are lessons yep. to be told, but think about uh, you in, in the United States specifically, I'm going to bring up the United States because I'm not entirely sure about education in other countries, but in the United States, <laughs> we learn about Greek myths very early on. Oh yeah. The Greek mythology is full of ambiguity. It is full of moral ambiguity. And like, even in uh, like the, the seventies and eighties, uh, I think the Greek myths, they weren't, maybe weren't taught, taught the way they are now, but it was still part of like world history. Right. Yeah. Where you learn these things and you learn them when you're younger and you learn about these bits of moral ambiguity. And th let's 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 talk about some quote unquote children's books that you well, and actually I... hold on though, before we get into that, yes. the reason I brought up the fairy tales is I wanted to point out that starting with Disney, we bring them up again, <laughs> a lot of those fairy tales were heavily sanitized for like two or three decades mm -hmm. before people started pushing back against that to bring back the older stories. Yeah. So a lot of the stories had that ambiguity, were sanitized, and then there was enough pushback that people brought them back to what they were before. Disney's Snow White has moral <sighs> ambiguity in it. The Hunter. Yeah. He is neither he good queen, nor bad. He was ordered by the queen to kill Snow White, and he can't. Yep. He is neither good nor bad. He's doing a job and he finds he can't do it. That is a moral ambiguity. And that's in Disney Snow White. That yeah. was the first big animated movie they had. And they just yeah. got more sanitized as time went on because it's Disney. And yeah. but well, I mean, again, like sometimes Disney goes through waves. They'll have yeah. the sanitization, then they'll push. They'll have the sanitization, then they'll push. The hyenas um, in The Lion King. Yeah, they're not because they were just bad. They're just hungry. They're hungry. the The problem is, is that they're hungry, and in this weird weirdo verse that Disney created, they'll just kill anything because they're hungry. And the person who promises um, to feed them is the bad guy, right? Um, but so to bring up some children's books that you and I have both read, the three who would nowadays be considered young adult novels but when they were written were definitely they were the children's version of the dragon riders of pern series the dragon song dragon drums that yes. that, trip, that triptych yes. of books has so yep. much moral ambiguity in it and those are children's yeah. books that were written in like what the 70s yeah because like mentally mentally becoming a harper in a super like in a society that has restricted women's roles because it's like they went like we learn why this happened. Mm -hmm. We learn why women were quickly regulated back in domestic roles because one, threadfall was so dangerous. Two, women couldn't carry children to term if they were flying on dragons because the cold of between uh, trigger warning for uh, pregnancy issues coming up. Um, but the cold of between would cause natural abortions, mm -hmm. essentially. So it was yeah. very, very difficult. It was very difficult for women dragon riders to carry children to term. So you have this society that has regressed from having women in equal positions to women once again taking on the household chore roles and so on. And she is smack in a, even for this society, a conservative section of a already leaning back towards conservative society. Mm -hmm. 
and she wants to be a harper but they're like women can't be harpers and then she becomes one anyway so, because fuck you guys and then she becomes one anyway yeah um, and you know what even in the later books when we get to like the books made for the adults again she still gets pushback from that like mm-hmm. she, she kind of teases a Lord Holder and he goes you're impudent young woman far too impudent and internally she's like fuck you yeah <laughs> like so I like, became a master you couldn't stop me moral ambiguity isn't a relatively new thing in children's books because the thing is when you think of children's books nowadays we think of things like uh the rainbow fish and things like that like baby's first chapter books you know little kid books uh baby's first chapter books like i one of my favorite book series when i was much much younger was hank the cow dog yes (laughs) and nobody knows or the or the backwards the backwards bird dog yeah and like (laughs) nobody knows that book series when i talk about it because it's a kids book it's a children's book but when you start getting into chapter books harry potter to bring up the evil that we do not normally speak of is a set of kids books that despite the fact that jk rowling is a terrible author there's a lot of moral ambiguity in those books that probably was unintentional on her part but you know um the books still have merit and it's you know as much as people hate to say it she wasn't as bad as she is now when she wrote the books the books still have merit. There are still parts of the books that are valuable. It's just the fact that she's still here mucking things up so we cannot interact with those books. Kit. It's a form of protest against her being a nasty piece of shit. Kit, a better, a better children's series. The Narnia books. Well, yes, of course. Written by a Christian fellow. <laughs> they have so much moral ambiguity in them. Yeah. Because well, I like it because it, half the animals are just animals. The only difference mm-hmm. is they can talk the hobbit which is by his own admission the children's book of the lord of the rings like universe the hobbit Mm -hmm. was meant to be read to children that was why it was written there is moral ambiguity in that book there is no clear-cut good and evil gandalf basically says as much Yes. I mean, they just walk into Smog's house and rob him. Yeah. yeah, sure, he beat the dwarves up, but the dwarves were asking for yeah, it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so much, like, it, it's, it's, it is a nuanced discussion that I would love to have more of. And I agree, like, Sky, like, in modern, like, young adult fiction. Oop, I hit my mic. In modern young adult fiction, moral ambiguity. I'll hit my mic, too, if you want to be evil. <laughs> e- evil? E- equal? <laughs> no, it's fine. I need to go It's fine. <laughs> in, in modern young adult fiction, which is a a very new genre of fiction like new new like within the past like decade and a half new yeah genre like i remember i remember seeing that shelf and watching it start to fill up yeah. in uh borders oh shit i just got a regirock cool nice so like the, it's it seeing moral ambiguity in those books and uh, the unfortunate thing with a lot of very modern young adult fiction, especially the dystopian stuff that tries to ape on Hunger Games and fails. Um, yeah. The moral ambiguity is ham-fisted at best. And so we get very. a lot of very bad books, but there there are books that, like... <laughs> to bring up another cursed series that is way less cursed in some ways than the Harry Potter books. Um... um shit kitty cat war crimes oh warrior cats, warrior there cats. We go. sorry cat the warrior cats books oh my god <laughs> i only read one I'm of sorry. those and i know kitty cat war crimes 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I can never- sometimes I just can't remember and I have to think of, okay, I know this is- Okay, I gotta make those, like, jumps to find the title for something, and Kitty Cat War Crimes was the name of a podcast that a friend of mine attempted to start, but he hasn't been able to actually keep up with because of his, like, life stuff. Um, but he called it Kitty Cat War Crimes, and so every time I try to think of Warrior Cats, I think Kitty Cat War Crimes, because that's the book series is Kitty Cat War Crimes! Anyway, Animorphs! Arguably, yes. a like I say, arguably children's series that was sold at the Scholastic Book Fair. Children's books, yeah. Moral ambiguity is such a big thing, and those books were written in the '90s and early 2000s. Oh yeah. So like, I agree to a degree, Sky, like on moral ambiguity in children's books, but it's like more. What I agree with is the globalization part of your. Uh, of your statement yes younger and younger kids are learning that the world is not made of black and white but is made of grays mm -hmm. but we cannot attribute that to modern children's books and modern young adult fiction because it is something that has been in children's books since forever Mm -hmm. It's been in our fairy tales. It's been in our myths and legends. Moral ambiguity is a thing that adults desperately try to teach to kids because the world is not black and white. Yep. We have to learn that there are gray areas. And for some people, it's much harder than others. Uh, source, I'm autistic, and it took a long time for me to learn that the world is gray <laughs> and not black and white. <laughs> Weird weirdly enough... Um... Again, like, I know I always bring up Mercedes Lackey, but I'm sorry. God. She's one of my favorite authors, okay? No, you're fine. I've but... read some of her books, and I do enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. And, like, so at the start of her series, you can you can see... That's the thing I love about her is you can see her growing as an author. Because in the start of her so stories, there's an entire nation of, like, they're the evil religious zealots. But then in later books, we start to see, well, maybe the whole nation isn't bad. And then it boils down to... The people ruling the nation are the problem, and the people under them are just trying to survive. We cannot judge them or the entirety of their religion when it is the people warping that religion to their purpose. So we learn about that moral ambiguity. You serve, like, what do you do when you're an essentially good person and you want to protect your entire people? Mm -hmm. But to protect your people, you have to serve essentially evil, corrupt men. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Where does your honor stand? What... What are you as a person going to do uh, what, to keep your morality? What is that? There there was a book series that I read as a kid. Um, um, oh, it's it's about the, the, the kid who's an alchemist. Uh, they have the really, really it, pretty covers, right? You know, did, you know, Didn't he also have like a cat sidekick? I think so. Yeah, you know the books I'm talking about. Well, because I read the prequel to that book, um, <laughs> which follows the Black Plague or one of the plagues that hits uh, England. Well, right? no, no, no. It, this it, is in a this is in a fantasy world. But it, no, it's not. That's what I mean. I think we're thinking like, of two they, different they books. Have, okay, we're thinking of two different books. The one I'm thinking series, of, but the one I'm thinking of is the Alchemist's Cat. Yeah, I think no, is the I'm one that thinking of something. I think it was called Alchemist, and it was spelt really weird, and it, like each of the oh, covers okay. were really pretty. But like that book series, it was similar. Like the 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 being an alchemist meant you served under the government. Um, read Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> read Full Metal Alchemist. We cannot stress this enough, you guys. Just to, you know what? Just talk about something instead of talking about something that neither of us know. Like we're both talking about two different things. Let's just Full Metal Alchemist is a manga series for children 
The moral Where some of the main characters have done war crimes. Alchemists, they've done war crimes. They work okay, for a so, government who actively hates them. Yeah. Well, this government is actively planning to turn the entire nation into just a big uh, power source. Uh, just turn them into corpses. So, spoilers for Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Spoilers, guys! The government's evil. The, the, the military government is evil. Who would have thought? The military um, that has a bit of, uh, I say a bit, a lot of pulls from Nazi Germany, because that was a lot of the sources yeah. that the author pulled from, to very unlike Attack on Titan. She was pulling from the source to lampshade very heavily. The government is the enemy. Yep. I remember there was an interview where like she was talking about to to be able to draw the 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 very emaciated people she was looking at um um concentration camps from World War yeah. II and how it very heavily and negatively affected her. Um I mean like the Ishvalans are like not even subtly yeah. meant to be the Jewish allegory. Yeah. It, or or Muslim, like just any Yeah. Just, Actually definitely more Muslim than Jewish. But, I, I um, feel like it's both I mean it's they cover the same part of the world. Yeah, that's true. It's um, it's definitely a kind of also got, both, but more yeah. leaning towards Jewish because of what she was pulling from specifically. Yeah. But they're and, also and if, queer people, anybody who yeah. was beat down by the very blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nazis. Yeah. They're the Aryan race. I've been learning way more about, like, some of the, like, theory behind that shit lately from other oh, podcasts God. and shit and, and, like, video essays. And it is bonkers. Dad, Dad watched a special on, like, the early days of the one guy who he was a, a fanatic of Atlantis, of the Atlantis theory. Mm -hmm. So the Nazis recruited him and gave him money and just sent him out to find proof that they were actually descendants from Atlantis. And then he got sent to the Himalayas for some reason because they were like, oh, we'll find proof of the Himalayas. And he came away with that with like, oh, yeah, the Atlanteans totally like they totally were in the Himalayans. But then they mixed with the Himalayan people and the bad blood ruined their intelligence and their beauty. It was there was a uh, I, let me let me oh, pull God, up. It's nuts. There's a podcast I listened to called um, the Jew Witches podcast, which shout out to uh, to, to her. Um, she does a fantastic podcast about Jewish history and mysticism. And she mm -hmm. she her most recent episode was with a it was about Ostara, the the pagan holiday heavy air quotes around that of Ostara and where oh, it came from was yeah. Nazis. <laughs> Yeah. And so I was learning also, way more about cut Nazi mysticism and it was fucking yeah. wild. Anyway, listen to the Jew Witches podcast. Yeah. It's so good. And not to cut this too much shorter, but I'm fading fast. Okay, let's let let's me, get let's, this. Uh, there is some commentary from Ben in our general okay. discussion that I want to go into. Okay. Um, ben had a kind of just off the wall question. I wonder if Brian was going for a Lord of the Flies thing with the squirrels, which I'm going to say no, because if you've read <laughs> yeah. Lord of the Flies... <laughs> hard no because if you actually read lord of the flies the boys actually do fine for months and months and months the thing that finally tips them over the end is a fighter pilot who crashes and they find his corpse and of course these boys who have been abandoned for months and trying to survive of course they finally psychologically snap because yeah. who wouldn't in this situation and if you read the actual like 
historical account that Lord of the Flies is based on, like those boys were fucking fine. Yeah. They they were rescued. They suffered trauma, obviously, but they didn't. They were taking care of each other because humans are good, actually. I, I definitely stand by my theory that this is like a darker look at like the lost boys. Yeah, it's definitely more because I think it's the boys who were originally lost were Tongan. They were not mm-hmm. British boys. And it's definitely more of a commentary on how British ideals that are instilled in young men are different than the ideals yes. that are instilled in other cultures. And so yeah, I think like it's, it's, it's definitely meant to be like, it's meant to be a rip on the British education and we societal should structure. read Lord of the Flies and not do like a full in-depth analysis, but just have like a dis- like a discussion episode about yeah. it. Add that to the list of things we can do after the <laughs> after we finish Redwall yeah. or whatever. Um, the clog enslaved bit makes me think of a bit from Discworld where there's a cat attacking people in human form, long story, and doesn't kill anyone even though he could. A dead enemy is just gone. A beaten enemy is a source of pride to look at every day and remember your victory. A clog dead would just be a corpse for Bad Rank. Keeping him alive is an abject lesson in rebellion, a show of his triumph, and a humiliation. Even with the risk, he's far more valuable this way, and I 100% agree with that. I do too. I really like that analysis, and thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah. Because um, um, that 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 soothes some of my earlier gripes about like, why are you keeping him around? He is a threat. Well, now it's not that he's a threat; he's a trophy. Yeah. Uh, ben wonders if the honey cakes that we see the shrews making in later books uh, were based on the batch that Grum made for them. I'll accept that headcanon. Maybe maybe that's why the shrews get nicer and nicer in later books because they <laughs> actually learn how to, they learn how to cook. Yeah. Which so you like know, they learn how to cook, yeah. which allows them to unionize, which allows them to behave better. It's it's extremely good. Um and then there's a bit uh is it just me by the way or does the I won't take your sword but will you put it down remind you of um this bit in the labyrinth with Didymus and the bridge? Um, in the labyrinth, you know, the weird little squirrel dude on the dog. Um, yeah. And I, I do kind of agree with that a little bit. I, uh, have not watched that bit in a long time, but I, it is very much like if you let the warrior make the decision themselves, they don't feel as slighted. We talked about this before. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that pride, it's that pride thing. It's a mix of pride and the hostility, not the hostility, the hospitality culture Mm -hmm. where it's like you are a guest in my house i must protect you but you must also respect my rules it's that push and shove and give and take of the medieval cultures like that Yeah, as ben put it the whole driven by honor thing Mm -hmm. which yeah i definitely agree with um ben always has very good comments on this stuff uh we appreciate you ben thank you for your commentary love you you very much (laughs) um I think that is everything that we had. There was a little bit yes. from Skylake about how um, we were trying to figure out where the fuck this area was. And Skylake points out that south <laughs> is arid and hot. Uh, so this is probably north. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the Murdop needing to intimidate strangers because they'd probably be dead like 20 times over otherwise. Yeah. Uh, begs the question how they made it to the Northlands in the first place and Ben says right. I assume there's like, a whole bunch of rabbits out there that we didn't see because they were busily hiding away maybe escaped yeah. slaves original inhabitants or forced to move by threat so you know yeah. bunnies <laughs> bunny 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 also the 
the the Murdoch name makes me think of like the the Mr. Brown can moo can you. There's a little thing where it's like dibble dibble dop dibble dibble dop dop. Mm-hmm. I always think of that when we read the Murdoch names, just dibble dibble dop dibble dibble Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to. I say... know that book because my nieces love it a lot. <laughs> uh, by the end of this, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. Um, now that we've finished this book. Uh, vampire or werewolf for Bad Rang? I think we originally said werewolf, and we definitely said that Clog was a werewolf, which I still stand beside. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. I feel like Bad Rang. I don't feel like he's quite a vampire or a werewolf at this point, because like he is a good pack leader. I think he's but... a werewolf who has been like he's the he's the if we're gonna go by the the alpha bullshit because that's typically yeah. what people think of when they think werewolf packs he's being beaten down and so yeah. he is no longer the alpha like most powerful werewolf and and clog is still a werewolf but you know he's doing his own thing now he doesn't give yeah. a shit yeah. um because like we've said before a lot of the times like the the sea rats tend to be more werewolf than vampire because of the yeah, way they're more packish they're more packish whereas like the ones who end up in fortresses we have uh bad rang trying to be a vampire but he's a werewolf yeah so ultimately he fails yeah <laughs> he's a chupacabra oh god <laughs> all right uh i believe that is every bit of discussion we had for this um okay please make sure send us uh uh, questions we are going on break now for a little while we'll be putting yep. out the um bloopers i don't know if we'll record a little bonus episode thing between this book and the next one uh what is the next book the next one is the Bellmaker. ah uh, yes another prequel yeah. of sorts or or an in-between quill in-between quill it's an in-between because it's about um mariel's father right yeah. Uh, that means that we're gonna get the one question from Skylake finally. Where is my copy yeah. of the Bellmaker? That's tag around. That's you. Okay. And if you made it through this episode, thank you very much. I apologize for our sniffling, snufflings, and stuffy noses. We appreciate you greatly for listening to us, even through all that. And <laughs> with that, uh, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. This has been Kit. You can find me at Kitsy in a box across most social medias. Uh, I make these little dessert foxes called Kitson Day. Things are very slow right now. So if you want to order one, now's the time. Uh, you can find... Oh, go ahead, Izzy. Uh, this has been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Uh, at this point, I think my Twitter has been nuked uh, by, by Elon Musk's new thing where it's like if you've been inactive for 30 days you you just did bye so that means that every other tumblr for the podcasts and stuff has also been nuked uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. i haven't checked i'm just assuming because we haven't looked at those literally since i stopped looking at them because i never paid attention to the password and never updated it so yeah so like uh follow us all on tumblr uh that's where we are now yeah. we've posted you can find so us uh, yeah, wait, you I gotta, can find I gotta, us both. My other popcats. My other popcats. My other popcats. Fine. Um, you can find me on. Fucking cats. 
You can find me on Hope's Hearth at Hope's Hearth Pod, which is a Solar Hope Punk actual play podcast. Uh, season three is about to end. We are about to start posting our season three finale uh, game. So uh, we will be going on uh, between season breaks soon. Now is a fantastic time to catch up. Uh, you can also find me on... Um, the SCP podcast, SCP Research Archives. Uh, and it does not... maybe someday, maybe someday I'll make a cameo on there too. Yeah, uh, it does not have a Templar yet because I keep forgetting to make one. Um, so it's just kind of there. Just find me on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, it's got two episodes so far, posts uh, every two weeks because I can't be asked to do every week on that one. It's too much. Um, this is a for fun, I am practicing my voice acting podcast. Uh, finally, Colchis is still in production, but the trailer for a podcast that I'm a voice actor on has dropped. It's been out for a little bit. Cauterized, which is a horror uh, audio drama that is also going to be a musical. It is a horror audio musical podcast. Um, I play Naomi, one of the main characters, um, and it is set in in the post-apocalypse where the things have gone very wrong and there's going to be bioengineered raptors in it and that's all i'm gonna tell you <laughs> kit it's got bioengineered raptors they're so good <laughs> i love them um yeah but the thing is i have my own bioengineered raptor and do. she's fluffy and nice these ones are so. also fluffy and nice <laughs> they're good they're just terrifying at the same time because they're okay. raptors anyway yeah uh so yeah that's where you can find me. Um, and I think that's it. <laughs> you can you can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. So More so Tumblr please, than Reddit at this point. <laughs> yeah. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It will help us out greatly because neither of us do this for money. We both do it for fun. Mm -hmm. And every little bit of attention helps. Yep. So may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. Time dot is. Okay. Clap at the twenty-five. Uh, let's do clap at the thirty. Okay. Sniff, sniff, snort, snort. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee 
at ko-fi.com forward slash HS Enclave. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave. And some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.